Good morning, beloved. Sunday, February 29th, 30th, 30th, 30th. Wait, March 1. I'm sorry. Okay, let's rewind the tape. Golly, I knew it was March 1st. But special welcome to um, to Lee's sister Liz in from north northeast of Athens, Georgia, to help Liz uh, to help uh, Lee move back. So farewell. Thank you for joining us, dear sister, during this season. Very grateful. So let's pray together. Thank you for a new day. Thank you for your mercies that cover us because of Jesus. Thank you for the hope of. Everlasting life because of the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for my dear friends, brothers and sisters who have a hunger for the word of God. And we pray the word of God would minister to us as you have intended it. To bring us deeper and deeper into fellowship with you. That our walk with you would be marked by joy and obedience and courage, confidence, hope and love. In Jesus name. Amen. You ever had that experience where you, you went into the box of uh, articles from your way past life and you found some letters you wrote to your girlfriend or your fiancé? You know, oh, this should be interesting. What in the world did I write? Yeah. Th- those kinds of things reveal, well, they're a function of a lot of different things. Your thinking at the time, your, your heart affections, function of your personality, your experiences, your worldview, your motives, your expectations, all of these things, right? That's, that's not rocket science. But because we're studying Paul's, uh, uh, Paul and Romans, particularly the reign of life between Romans 5 and 8, we're just taking a little bit more time, we'll finish today, getting to know the man. Who's the man that has given us this material? Yes. Ultimately, what Paul has written is exactly down to the word what God wanted him to write. But God used the man, Paul. And so what we have from his pen to help us know who God is, is a, is a function of the man, Paul. So that's, that's why we're spending some of this time looking at the backstory in, uh, in Acts and 2 Corinthians. So that's, what we're, that's why we're doing this. And we are down to Paul's satisfaction in Romans 15, 15 to 19, who would read that for it? I'm, I'm just calling it Paul's satisfaction. Thanks, Frank. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way to Olyprium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Thank you. There's a lot there. Observations? So what is Paul's satisfaction, if that's a fair title to put on this, what, what Frank read? What's his satisfaction? He 
Pretty simple. Preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Preached the gospel to the Gentiles. He had a distinct calling to take the gospel to the non-Jewish world. Notice that is by the grace of God. Anything strike you as a little, hmm, a little iffy in what he wrote? Any phrase there? I have reason to be proud. That, does that jump off the page at you? We normally, Katie, think of pride as a sin, a bad thing. Don't be proud. So what is Paul saying? Where does he locate the, the success of the ministry to the Gentiles? It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. So he's a vessel. And don't you, after a project, when you graduate, at the end of your career or whatever, don't you want to find satisfaction having done the thing God called you to do? Yes, God gave the grace. Yes, this is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yes, this only happens because Jesus is reigning and he's blessing the means he's ordained. But don't you want to have that satisfaction? Paul does. It's an amazing thing. It's, it, it, it's a glorious thing. Have you experienced that in your life? Not to say he's proud, but he's not proud that he did it. He's yeah. saying Christ is accomplished. So he's proud of the fact that like, he was there, but Christ did all the work. Yeah. Christ did all the work. I can do all things through Christ and strength. Okay, we could spend some, but that's just a rich, overflowing passage. Let's look at Paul's extraordinary gift. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 4. I'm sorry, yes? Do you have a new handout? Because some of the handouts don't have a list of things that you're, you're going through. So. Oh, they should. Yeah, there's a different one that's out there which doesn't have that list. Can I see it real quick? Seriously, the copy machine was not treating me well this week. Uh, you need a. The list is a big two. The list says at the top, getting to chapter five. Ha ha. Right, Mike. That copy machine you gave me. Oh, that copy machine you gave me. <laughs> Actually, they say that's the Maserati in the copy machine. It's like. Got it. That's what they say. I mean, it can. It, it'll make coffee in the morning for you. Okay, Paul's extraordinary gift, 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 4. Fabi. What? Hi. Hi, sister. Good to see you, sister. Um, who's got it for us? I'll read it. Thank you. Boasting is necessary, so it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body or I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know. God knows. Was caught up in paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Thanks, Nate. So, so remember the backstory with the super apostles. That's why he's doing this boasting thing. 
he's parlaying the fact that they were really boasters, they were arrogant, they were proud, and they thought that was a good thing. He's parlaying that and said, okay, you want to talk about boasting? How would you like to have on your resume, you'd seen paradise? And he, he even tempers that by using a literary device that says, I know a man in Christ who. He, he doesn't even flat out say, I did it, but you know, it's clear who it is. So why do you think God gave Paul this extraordinary experience of seeing paradise and coming back? And Why do you think he got that? Because he was going to suffer so much. Because he was going to suffer so much. <clears throat> this man suffered unbelievably. And what a gift from God to see paradise. And wouldn't you love to him to describe it? How does he describe it? I can't. It's so good. I can't. He says several times, I do not know. God knows. And it's enough for him. Well, he's saying this, the, the vision that he had, he doesn't know whether he kind of went there in his body in some sort of thing or just in his spirit. That's immaterial. He, he, he sought paradise and came back to continue to uh, share the way other, uh, the rest of us get to paradise. Okay. Extraordinary gift. As Frank said, because he was going to suffer uh, extensively. And then, his thorn in the flesh. Skip down to the same chapter, 7 through 10. Who'd read that for us? So to keep you from becoming conceited <coughs> of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Thank you. Again, against the backdrop of the super apostles. If you want credibility in ministry, look polished, flashy, together, articulate, nothing that would cause people to go, well, he's not very impressive. Impressiveness was the thing for the super apostles. And Paul says, oh, on the one hand, you want impressive icy in paradise. But on the other, where I'm laying my, I'm putting all my cards in my suffering. Because there, what needs to happen, the grace of God needs to show up. So isn't it, isn't it amazing that Paul says twice in this text, the reason he has a thorn in the flesh is what? So he doesn't get conceited. That's quite an admission. Is it a little, isn't that something? Do you expect Paul to say, to keep me from becoming conceited, I've got this thorn in the flesh? That's, wow. Is there something in your life God has put there to keep you from becoming conceited? Think about. Okay. Any other thoughts on this particular portion? He's got this thorn in the flesh. I preached on this back when we did uh, begging Jesus. I don't know if you remember. It's been a long time, but commentators think he probably either had a speech impediment or something wrong with his eyes. Neither of which would be very good for a public speaker, right? So God, you're going to have to show up and overcome this. We grace, 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 grace. We need grace, 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 grace. All the time, without fail. 
And then the last epistle we have from the pen of the Apostle Paul is 2 Timothy. So let's look at 2 Timothy 4, the last chapter we have from Paul. 2 Timothy 4. He is passing the baton of his apostolic ministry to Timothy. Uh, He knows he's going to die soon, probably in a, a, a prison in Rome. And so these are the last words that we have in uh, Holy Scripture from the a pen and mind of Paul. His final assessment, 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Thanks, Terry. Again, a picture of a man with <coughs> profound satisfaction of how he ran his life. He's at the end. Did he have any regrets? Any regrets? Probably as a human being, some. But there's profound satisfaction that the thing God gave him to do was done. So how do you get to that point? What, what, what do you need to do on a regular basis so that when it's all over, you look back and you go, fought the good fight, finished the course, ran the race. What do you need to do to finish the race? A lot of obedience. A lot of obedience. Good. You're going to be tempted to give up, tempted to turn back, tempted to turn in on yourself, tempted to kick up your heels and go, it's time for me to do nothing. Nate? Well, part of it is how you do it. He's talking about this is about how he's led with a clear conscience. So he is, how he has done it, what he's done, is placing What's the key to a clear conscience? The relationship with Christ. The relationship with Christ? I think putting yourself on check, putting yourself down and letting Christ lead through you, because otherwise you're just going to become Point three in the sermon today, clean conscience. So, interesting that you mention it. So, so a series of significant, many decisions throughout your life, being thoughtful, putting your eye on the prize, thinking about where God has brought you, what does God want me to do, asking those questions, engaging with other people. One of the reasons I became a church planter way back when is I had friends who said, you need to do that. We know you well enough, we've seen you minister, that you, we think you need to church plant. So, I did. And then I got comfortable and they said, do you need to do that again? So I did. <laughs> anyway, and then they said, we think you'd be a good interim. So, I tried it. <laughs> you guys are just my second season, so bear with me. And how about Paul's confidence, 2 Timothy 4, 17 to 18, his confidence. Thank you. So rescue and deliverance here is ultimately what? It's death. It's being with Jesus. Because he got, he got pummeled time and time and time and time again. And he was delivered from those. You know, the, the, the ship, he would have died in that shipwreck. 
God preserved his life, but he's ultimately preserving it unto being with the Lord forever, receiving that crown of righteousness. Okay, so we took a lot of time to do that. I hope that was helpful. Understanding the man, the things that shaped him, what, they, what those things produced in the way he went about his life. We're going to move on then to the rest of the handout. Moves on. Anything you want to say about Paul? Has it affected the way you think about yourself? Great example. So, sorry? Inspiration. Inspiration, yeah. Chat. Not a new thought, but in terms of how we define success, I find I'm just constantly having to get revectored in terms of how, so that's how I choose pastors, but it could be anything of this person is good at presentations, they cast a vision. What works so well for us during the week at our jobs, we bring that into our Christian life, thinking that will bring success. I found I really have to guard against that. That this is a completely different lifestyle. Not that it doesn't infiltrate our lives, but hopefully that makes sense. Good. So, what is success then, biblically, and what we learned from Paul? How would you define it? How would you measure success in your life? Sorry? Obedience. To what specifically? To God, the Holy Spirit. To God, the Holy Spirit. And leading in your particular life. Yeah, success for Lisa McGovern is going to look different than success for Fabby Calkins. Because there's what on Lisa's life versus Fabby's versus mine versus Bob's versus hers. What is on our life? A particular calling to serve the Lord with gifts in a specific way. We're not all gifted the same way. But, duh, right? I think I've been thinking a lot about contentment and in understanding what Paul was saying. It was interesting. I was talking about this part of the Bible where Paul talked about the flesh, the, the part of the flesh. And I have a tendency to fight everything very bad. So things that I didn't like in my life, you know, when God to remove. And I prayed for several several years about it. And he said no. And lately, maybe the last year, he had more and more brought to my attention. My grace has to be sufficient to you. And the more I understand and accept that and, and, and think about contentment, because he is sufficient. Um calmer and, and more peaceful and and I can see God's purpose and I can get myself out of the way Good. and let him do what he's going to do. Good. It's interesting, Fabi mentions um, contentment. The, the Greek word for contentment is self-sufficient. Isn't that interesting? Self-sufficient. Auto and whatever the word for sufficient is there. And the idea is, I am not looking externally for the stability and welfare and satisfaction of my soul. I have it in Christ. That's contentment. I don't need your approval. I don't need to control you. I don't need you to think I'm confident. I don't need to prove I'm right or whatever. It's, it's in me because Christ is in me. And then, and then who's, the, who's the man or the woman God has shaped you to be so that success is... You're in the place God wants you, doing what God wants you. For that season, it might change. 
Janice and I were talking the other day uh, in order to send our kids to private Christian school and to college, she went to work uh, years ago. She didn't think she'd be going to work, and she said, I never felt a calling as a teacher, although she was a really good teacher, math, science, middle school. She was a really good teacher. She said, I didn't feel a calling as a teacher, even though she did it very well. Why am I telling you this? It was a season for her. Now she's a very happily retired school teacher. I mean, really happily retired. <laughs> when, when we drive across town to go see our kids, and we go, the, the school's up on the hill, she's like, <laughs> So anyway, she served the Lord well in a season, and now she has a different season. So she can help with the nursery here. She can help with the kids Sunday night here. She sings in the choir club. Okay. In the place God wants you, doing what God wants you to do. Should we move on, Nate? You say it's interesting, Paul, when he's summarizing his, uh, his life of ministry, there are a lot of things that some people might get focused on that would be considered regrets. So, you know, he had Demas that was serving with him and then uh, departed yeah. the faith. You have John Mark where they fell out. You had all these problems with the churches. And so, we might be tempted to focus on things that aren't going well. He doesn't do that at all. He's focused on the success that Christ has worked through him. I think that's really helpful, guys, and, and that is not to get stuck on these past things. Is it the language of Philippians 3? One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I, I'm looking forward. And so Nate is saying there were some bad things. The Demas departed me. Uh, he says even in this chapter, my first offense, no one supported me. He could hold. So he's not fixated on those bad things, but he's moving forward. That's a really helpful thing, pastorally, for us. I, I know I can. I've had sour relationships in the church in my career. I, I'm, sometimes I go back and I want to fixate on those, and that, that, doesn't, that doesn't help. It's not good. Okay. Thank you. One other thing I've noticed in the structure of a lot of his letters, <clears throat> that he ends, well, near the end there's like this lofty exhortation or benediction, and then he goes and he greets people by name, a lot of people by name, yeah. individually. <clears throat> yeah. So he's you know, there's this really lofty thing, and then he's like back in your concrete reality of who he's working with where. Yeah. And that kind of makes really <coughs> personal, relatable, a team guy. Yeah. He's got relationships with these people. These people's names end up in the eternal word of God. Think about Yodia and Syntyche in Philippians uh, 4, beginning of... Like, their names are in the book of life because I can't get along. But Lisa's point is, he writes these epistles, lofty theology, and, oh, by the way, say hi to Chad for me. Say hi to Nate for me. How's everything going with Jovan? Thank you for letting the church meet in your house, Dan and Chofan. Right? Thank you. It's just, yeah, that personal touch. Good. So he's a man had relationships. Let's look at the next little portion there. This is a little bit of a summary for you. Uh, Paul's a Pharisee, scholar, a man with marked by raging fury, a murderer, probably single, and a tent maker, as we've seen. Uh, what, the Pharisees, now there's in more recent scholarship, there's been some, the work of E.P. Sanders and others, and then uh, N.T. Wright, were, are trying to, are trying to, put a different light on the Pharisees. I personally don't buy it. And let me, uh, on the strength of a couple of things, one, 
Luke 18, when Jesus tells the story of the Pharisee and the publican parable, he says, Jesus told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Well, that's the Pharisees. And just one other illustration. Look at Romans 10, 1 through 4. Paul was a Pharisee. Does he get the whole works righteousness thing? He sure does. Romans 10, 1 to 4. Who would read this for us? Because I think this has got the Pharisees in the crosshairs of the target. Romans 10, 1 through 4. 1 through 4? Yeah, 10, 1 through 4. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Thank you. So, who's he talking about? The Pharisees. What are they doing? They're trying to establish their own righteousness. Missing completely what? The righteousness of God, which as we'll see as we get a little bit more into the study, the righteousness of God from chapter 1 is the way a righteous God makes unrighteous people perfectly righteous for his presence, which is the gospel. Okay. But, and, and so these are very zealous people. We, we all know churchgoers who are good people, relatively speaking. They're zealous. They serve the church with joy. They haven't got a clue that they're saved by grace through faith, by the mercy and sacrifice of Jesus. They think they're good people are going to heaven. That's a sad place to be. So his heart breaks for these kinds of people. He prays for them. They're trying to establish their own righteousness. So zeal is fine. Add to it knowledge. Add to your knowledge Zeal, right? Because you want to just be dead. That's dead orthodoxy. Knowledge without zeal. Okay. So there's the Pharisee. He's a scholar. A man who was with raging fury. Did he think his intentions were good? Raging fury against Christians? Yeah. Yeah. A murderer, yet lived with a clear conscience. Single tent maker. Who's the audience of the book of Romans? Christians, Jews, and Gentiles in Rome. In chapter 1, verse 13, he makes an allusion to the rest of the Gentiles. That tells you clearly he has a Gentile audience in mind. There were also Jews in the church. <clears throat> We've, uh, scholars have dated this to around A.D. 55 to 57. So you're looking at uh, uh, 20-some years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay. 20-some years after Paul was casting his vote when they stoned Stephen. Stephen was stoned, what, just weeks after the resurrection of Jesus. And most scholars think it was written from Corinth to Rome when Paul was there. He had time to write in addition to tent me and be a church guy. He took time to write. What's the reasons? Scholars always want to know what was the occasion for the letter? What's the reason? Back to that box of love letters I wrote my bride. What was the reason? Well, I visited her, I came home for the weekend, and I'm writing her a letter to tell her I miss her. But there's a reason for it. Right. So here are the reasons from the letter itself. To prepare the way for a personal visit to the church in Rome. He wants to go to the church in Rome. This is preparing the way. 
Secondly, to set forth a comprehensive treatment of the way of salvation and implications for the Christian living. In the first half of the book, you get the indicative. What God has done for you in Christ. The theology of salvation. First half of the book. Not not only Romans, but all his epistles. The second half, the imperative. This is who you are. This is how you live it out. And that's what distinguishes Christianity from all the other world religions. Christianity is be who you are, not try to become something God will accept. God loves you, now go love him and others. Not go love him and others, so God will love you. Okay, so this is the structure of it. We're going to see it in Peter this morning, in, uh, in 1 Peter. He tells you what God has done for you, who you are in Christ, and then he works out the implications of it. That might mean that we should start the day preaching the gospel to ourselves, reminding ourselves who we are in Christ, so that everything we do think and say flows out of who we are, remind ourselves who we are, who we are, who we are. And then the third reason is to set the stage for a future missions trip to Spain. Paul ultimately wanted to get to Spain. If he's going to get to Spain, the best way to get there is via Rome, and then take a flight from Jerusalem to Rome, the next flight from there to Madrid. See, that's the best way to get there. So you can stretch your legs in the Roman airport. That's so, that's so he's ultimately trying to want to get to sin. So these are some of the specific reasons for the letter. What's his style? You, you call his style sustained theological reasoning. Versus, he didn't write a bunch of stories. Who did use stories? Jesus. He didn't uh, tell a bunch of parables. Who used parables? Jesus, narrative, it's not poetry, it is sustained theological reason, what you might call the storm crow lawyer. He makes a point, he defends it, he anticipates objections to that point, he answers those objections even before you can raise them. Right? Romans 9. Are you saying God's unfair to elect some and not others? He anticipates that question, he knows you're thinking that. He beats you to the punch and he answers it for you. It's beautiful. It's epistolary, it's an epistle, it's a letter, with no specific reference to local concerns, and I rethought that this morning reviewing my notes. In chapter 14, he does deal with the question of the weak and the strong, how I'm viewing you, how you celebrate Sabbath, whether you eat food, idols, how you use wine. That looks like a little bit of a local concern, but that's kind of the only one. Versus Corinth, they're a mess. Got all kinds of problems. Okay? And his argumentation, he starts with thesis, that's chapter 1, 16, and 17, followed by support. So he's, right, he's, he's, he's kind of a mixture of a Greek thinker, this is very Western, it's very Greek, and you feel the Jewish impact as well, because he was raised as a Jew. Scope? something we call the ordo salutis. Anybody, what, what those two words mean? The ordo salutis? The order of salvation. According to Peter, when did he know you and choose you? Right. Before, the Before the foundation of the world. Okay, so the order of salvation is simply logically how God acts on our behalf to love which relationship with himself. Election, Chosen, predestination, and then, so in, before all eternity, God knows he's going to create you, give you physical existence, and he knows he's going to save you, give you 
spiritual renewal. He knows he's going to do that, and he chooses you. Not based on what he sees, based on because he knows you and loves you and wants you to belong to him. In space and time, God calls you to himself. And the normal means of being called into relationship with God are you hear the gospel. And you respond to the gospel with faith and repentance. True faith always repents. True repentance is always believing. Faith and repentance. Uh, you are just prior to that, although timing can be debated among scholars, you're born again in order that you might believe and repent. That's really one of the points we saw in last week's sermon. The moment you believe the gospel, you are justified, you are adopted. That begins the lifelong process of sanctification. We're going to look at that some in the sermon today. The goal of which is glorification, which is you look exactly like Jesus. That's what God wants. We're going to hear in the sermon today from Romans 8.25. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The plan of God is that his son, Jesus, would have brothers and sisters that morally reflect that glory and enjoy that forever. He just, God wants Jesus to have a family. We're in. Stunning. Uh, you'll hear in the sermon that sanctification is not just progressive, it's also definitive or punctiliar. When, when he talks about being in Christ or being holy, set apart, saint, you get on to the sermon already. So there's the, the moment he sets you apart from light to darkness, from death to light, from self to Christ, etc. There's a definite setting apart, we call that definitive sanctification. Impress your co-workers at the coffee at the uh, water cooler tomorrow that you believe in definitive as well as progressive sanctification. Okay. Good. So if you're a saint, you're set apart. You're a holy one. God has rescued you and delivered you into a relationship with himself. Questions or thoughts about this? Oh, I, it looks like I have perseverance in there, too. Those whom God calls, he preserves. Those whom God calls, persevere. If you've probably known somebody who started the Christian life and then just, we hear more about pastors and Christian authors today who are just, they're bailing on the faith. They're, if they died and they, did, and they died denying Jesus, what does it tell you about that profession back there? That it wasn't bona fide. Because real believers always persevere to the end. And they hang on to God preserving them. And we'll see that in next week's sermon, that we are protected by the power of God through faith. God keeps us believing because we're the work of God from eternity to eternity. Thoughts, questions? The word of salute is breathtakingly beautiful. Lee? saying that uh, those individuals you were describing don't, quote, lose their salvation. You see, it wasn't, they're never there never was a salvation to you. Lose. That's right. And, and that is a tricky thing in the sense that we never know at the end what happened, just like the the, 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 the robber and the cross. But that was true that he, 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 he belonged to Christ then. But um, that was, I did not grow up understanding all this. And it took me years to get the grip of it. And I think it's because I was afraid that I wasn't. It wasn't because I could, you know, like, it goes back to power. 
I want to, because if I believe that I can choose Christ, then I don't need to worry about I can choose. It's up to me. And you can unchoose as well. Yes. Right. If it's right. up to you in the beginning, it's not. It's up to you to keep. Yeah. Although some theologies want to have it both ways, but. Ultimately, regeneration comes before faith. That's right. Did I not make that clear? No. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the miracle happens, and then we believe. That's right. So, you know, that's fundamental to it. We're, we're, our faith is not because we ginned it up. Right. It's because God has has, has created a miracle. Yes. Yeah. That is the greatest miracle, the new heart. And, and for some people, I hear that it happens overnight, and for other people, they have to go back and forth with Christ and to struggle. And, and I was a struggler. I had to, to struggle. Yeah. Steve but Smallman, was, uh, sorry. But it was a relief when I finally understood, when God finally gave me the gift to really understand and say, can you just chill? And yeah. <laughs> I did it. I, I had it. Some of you may know the name Steve Smallman. He's a, uh, he pastored McLean Presbyterian for years and years and years. Your pastor, Bill Sutherland, here a couple a decade or so ago, he is married to Steve Smallman's daughter. But Steve has a wonderful work called The Spiritual Birth Line, and he basically says, he says, uh, being born again, as Frank is pointing out, sometimes happens in a process. So life begins to conception, we believe. Spiritual life begins here. The Holy Spirit implants life in us. The baby is born and the baby cries. Yeah, right? Every mother. Huh, that's just the most glorious thing in the world. So the cry of faith is only produced because we were first born again. And he makes the point that sometimes, this is what Fabi is pointing out, sometimes there's a, a lot of process of things that happen in there. Maybe you're born again. Uh, Paul's conversion was pretty instantaneous. Not so for everybody. That's, a, I, that's just want you to be aware. It's very, very helpful, spiritual birth line. Nate? I think it's important for us to remember that we can't see anybody's heart. So yeah. We're just kind of seeing what their uh, acts are. And Jesus has given us parables that help us to understand that there's not everyone is going to continue on. So you have the parable of the sower, where there are a lot of people that hear and it looks like they're believers, and then they will continue that way. Yes. And there are also, with you know, the wheat and the tares, there, there are people in the church that appear that they love Jesus, but it's going to come out of the mind. Yeah. That, that's, that's a normal state. That's not something that's going to be that something is going wrong. We know that these things are going to happen, and not everybody really has a heart change. That they may be um, something about the Christian life may be attractive, but it doesn't show that all of this is really happening. Yes. Very good point. So ultimately, that's from our point of view, we always give people the benefit of the doubt. If you say you're a Christian, I'm going to treat you like a Christian. And the, the point I'm making here is if somebody says they're a Christian, acts like a Christian for a season, and then bails on the faith, there's two possibilities, right? Um, they never were, or you can lose your salvation. Well, the, the third possibility is they, they, they bail on the faith, they're having a terrible time, but they're going to come back. In, in, in but doesn't mean he's not safe. A lot of, thing, a lot of my thinking process when I was kind of adjusting my, my thinking, I would say, oh, God was adjusting my thinking, was, man, when I was doing those terrible, crazy things against God's will, I was His already. Yeah. And so it also makes us think that 
with every patient, some people just take a little longer. Yeah. And I was very blessed with a very patient pastor. Yeah. <laughs> so what's important here is, let's just close with this. What is our obligation to one another in view of the word of Salutis? Charity. Sorry? Charity. Charity. Are we all going to struggle with sin? <coughs> James 3, 2, we all stumble in many ways. Yes, correction, love, and accountability. Why? That's part of the means God uses to preserve his own and to help you persevere. And so this is where conscience is very important. I'm going to make the point in my sermon that our God has given us a conscience as, a, as an alarm system. There's something wrong, there's something wrong. There's deviation from the way I've called you to live, from the word of God. And we will silence our conscience in ungodly ways. There's only one way to silence the conscience, the precious blood of Jesus. And so we need to help each other walk. That's how the Lord's Supper is designed to function for us. We help each other. We come alongside each other. We encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. When is it called today? Every day. Lest any one of you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we should all wake up every morning thinking, sin is going to try to harden my heart if... If what? If I don't get if I don't get encouragement from my brothers and sisters. That's what your elders want to have happen in home groups, in Bible studies, small groups, one-on-ones. And hopefully you're getting encouragement to this end in the teaching you're getting, in the preaching you're getting, in the worship you're getting. Okay. Let's pray. Again, I thank you for my brothers and sisters. It's just beautiful to see people with a love for the Word of God, a hunger for the truth, and uh, a very well-taught, a very well-educated uh, body of believers is this, is this precious family. Lord, as we go to worship, may we have a welcoming hand out to those we don't know. We pray for visitors, for the stranger, to be befriended, to be welcomed, to hear and know Christ. We pray your Spirit to be poured out on this assembly, that he would work the work of God, enlightening us and comforting us, well, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted, but above all, bringing out of our hearts something of the worship, the praise, the glory and honor that you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So you can see next week.